be talking this week about Solomon. And um, when I think about Solomon, I think about how it must have felt for Solomon to take the throne after King David, right? King David is the superstar of all the kings of Israel. He's the guy. He's the, he's the one that they wrote songs about. Literally wrote songs. You guys remember me talking about, you know, Saul is slain as thousands and David is slain as tens of thousands. I don't know. It was like a top 40 hit, but it was uh, the women were, the Bible says the women were following behind him as he came into town singing this song. So it's kind of like, you're like, oh, all right, well, that's kind of cool. So, um, so, so David is the amazing king of Israel. He's established Israel as a superpower. He's the warrior king. Now, Solomon, um, Josephus says that he was about 14 years old when he took the throne. Other scholars say he was around 20, but we, we don't know exactly, but we know he was young. And can you imagine being a young man and you've got to take the throne after your superstar father is leaving office? Man, what an amazingly scary situation to be in. I was thinking back to when I first started preaching and I got the opportunity to preach at the church that I was serving on staff at. The church is about 800 people or so. And um, I remember um, getting the opportunity to preach. It was a Sunday night. I was wearing my best suit. And um, I got up and I preached. And I felt really good about the message when I was done. I walked off the stage. And one of my friends comes walking over to me kind of fast. And I was like, yes, he's going to congratulate me on the job well done. He walks up to me, shakes my hand. He goes, dude, your fly's unzipped. And I looked down, and not only was my fly unzipped, but the tail of my shirt was sticking out my fly. I had preached the entire message with one of those clear plexiglass podiums, the whole thing with my shirt tail hanging out the zipper of my britches. That's one of those moments where, you know, you're, you kind of have those nightmares that something like that's going to happen, right? It happened to me. And I wonder if, if Solomon's not thinking, you know, I wonder if I'm going to get up on coronation day and my fly is going to be unzipped or somebody's going to be looking at me weird. You know, I'm following this man. It's so great. And I remember my pastor, I just looked up to him so much. He was a great preacher, a great communicator. And there I get up and I'm like, oh, man, no wonder people were paying such close attention while I was preaching. It wasn't because that was that great. It's because my fly was unzipped. So it was just kind of this weird deal. So um, so we're going to start in the book of 2 Chronicles, and uh, we're going to read the beginning of the reign of King Solomon, 2 Chronicles chapter 1. The stories of the kings are broken up into uh, several different books. There's 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then 1 and 2 Chronicles. All of them tell um, parallel stories of the kings of Israel and Judah, and um, I like the way that the chronicler, the chronicler, by the way, most people believe that it was probably Ezra that wrote the books of Chronicles. And the way that Ezra is writing, he's writing to a people who've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And they're getting ready to to take back the land that God had given them. But they're a people that have been defeated and beaten up and they feel enslaved in their minds. And so now they're going back. And so Ezra has this way of reminding the people of all the good things about the kings of Israel. He also highlights some bad things, but you know, uh, first and second Samuel a little bit more exclusive to the to the bad 
um, of the kings and first and second kings as well. But let's read this. Second um, Chronicles chapter one. We're going to start with verse one. We're going to read through verse six. It says Solomon, son of David, took firm control of his kingdom. For the Lord his God was with him and made him very powerful. Solomon called together all the leaders of Israel, the generals and captains of the army, the judges and all the political and clan leaders. Then he led the entire assembly to the place of worship in Gibeon. For God's tabernacle was located there. This was the tabernacle that Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. David had already moved the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the tent he had prepared for it in Jerusalem. Now, here's something that's interesting. Because the ark was the traditional resting place of the Spirit of God, right? This is where we see as the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness for 40 years, where is the presence of God rest? On the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant, right? And so the presence of God is known to dwell there. But the place where the altar of sacrifice was, was at the tabernacle. So the, the sacrifice, the furnishings of the tabernacle, um, the, the big tent, all of that is right here in this place in Gibeon. And what's interesting to me is that when, when Solomon wants to have an encounter of God, he goes to the place of sacrifice, not to the place of presence. He goes to the place of sacrifice not to the place of presence. And this becomes significant because as we read, look what happens as Solomon makes his sacrifice. It says, verse 5, But the bronze altar made by Bezalel, son of Uri, and grandson of Hur was there at Gibeon, in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the people gathered in front of it to consult the Lord. There, in front of the tabernacle, Solomon went up to the bronze altar in the Lord's presence and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings on it. That is a grotesque amount of sacrifice. A grotesque amount of sacrifice. We, we kind of sanitize the idea of sacrifice in our culture, don't we? You just think, okay, they went and they sacrificed an animal, and we just kind of pass it off. But do you know how much blood and gore comes from a thousand burnt offerings? The stench, the scene, how incredible it must have been to see Solomon make this sacrifice. And see, we kind of detach from it, don't we? Because we don't see it. But... But these guys were so intentional and deliberate about saying, God, I want to be extravagant in my sacrifice. I want, I want to feel the fact that it cost me something to experience your presence. It cost me something. I even love when David goes to buy um, the field, the wine press, where the Temple Mount would eventually be built. And, and he goes and he, he, he is offered the wine press. The guy says, look, you can just have it. I'll give it to you. You're my king. I want you to have it. And David says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to sacrifice to the Lord my God that which has cost me nothing. It would do us well to get this in our culture, right? A sacrifice of praise is not coming to church on Sunday and going, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. What does that cost me? Right? What does that cost me? It costs us maybe a little discomfort if you're not really at ease with raising your hands, right? 
But what does it really cost us? But here is Solomon going before God to say, God, I know that this power that I'm getting ready to step into is the king of Israel. This is a very valuable position. And I want to demonstrate with my posture and my behavior that I understand this is going to cost me something. And so he offers these sacrifices. It says, that night, God appeared to Solomon and said, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Wow. What a moment. Can you imagine? I remember when I was growing up, and I watched, um, I watched the, the movie. You guys remember the Mickey Mouse version of um, the, the genie and the lamp, the Aladdin uh, kind of thing? Not the Aladdin that came out in the 90s Aladdin, but the precursor when Mickey Mouse and the, and the, the Alibaba and all of that stuff. And, and they find, the, uh, they find the, the, the lamp and they rub the lamp. And you guys, have you ever dreamed about if you ever found a magic lamp? What you would get if you could just like rub the lamp and get the genie to come out and give you what you wish for? Am I the only person that's ever thought that? Come on. All right, come on. There, there was some honesty. Thank you. So this is kind of that coming true for Solomon. It's like the genie is one wish. But wish for anything you want, God says, and I will give it to you. Wow, that's pretty cool. Now listen to Solomon's response. Solomon replied to God, you show faithful love to David, my father, and now you have made me king in his place. Oh, Lord God, please continue to keep your promise to David, my father, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? Man, what a request. What a wise request. You, you got to think that, that Solomon came to the table with just a little bit of wisdom if that was the request that he made, right? But then what happens is so significant, just like Samson received strength when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, Solomon received supernatural wisdom when the Spirit of God came upon him. The Scripture says that, that he was the wisest man on earth. People came from all around. Matter of fact, the Queen of Sheba came from thousands of miles away just to test him. Now, in his day, what was common was rulers from different kingdoms would actually have kind of like wisdom wars, right? And they would sit across from each other and play like this verbal game of chess and and, and try to stump each other on their knowledge. And so this, this Queen of Sheba comes, and when she gets there, She sits across from Solomon and she starts to ask him questions and Solomon is just blowing her away with all of his wisdom and knowledge. He's got knowledge in every area, horticulture and animal behavior and all kinds, everything. The guy is just brilliant. And what I love about Solomon is that he does his very best to pass on his wisdom to his children, but then he also does his best to pass his wisdom on to us. Aren't you glad? Anybody heard of the book of Proverbs? That is Solomon's gift to you with the wisdom of God contained in it. All right, flip over in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. We're going <clears> to <throat> study this in just a second, but... Um, 
This is kind of, as I read through Solomon's life, as I think about who he is as a person, this is the one thing that I think is the takeaway of all of Solomon's wisdom. And it's something that, um, that we could call the principle of the path. Okay? And we're going to talk about this idea. There's, there's a, a path that we get on. And I want to just kind of, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 7 and, um, and really kind of dig into what he's doing here. But before we do, I remember my first road trip by myself as a 16-year-old kid. I was going to a little town in the middle of the cornfields of Illinois. And um, it was before the era of GPS. It was before the era of cell phones. And we had this thing that we called a map. You guys ever heard of those? Okay. It's, it's, it was actually made of paper, which is something that they, they use trees. And they cut them down and then they pulp it up and it, they make paper out of it. And paper is this flat substance that opens up. You can write on it. And different things. It's neat. You should check it out sometime. Google it. You'll, you'll like it. Um, so, so I have this paper map, and everybody used to have an atlas, too, because if you accidentally wandered into another state, right, you wanted a map of that state, too. So you had this Rand McNally Road Atlas. How many of you have ever had those? Right? I still keep one in my car, because if my GPS fails, I know how to read it, and I want to use it, right? And so... Um, <clears throat> So I remember I'm trying to go. I'm 16 years old. I didn't have a lot of common sense. A lot of you say you still don't have a lot of common sense. That's okay. I still love you. Um, so I, I just had, I had a full tank of gas and my Rand McNally Road Atlas and I was ready to go. And um, I knew where I was headed. But um, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are lost people and not lost people. How many of you generally would say you fall in the not lost people category? You're driving around. You're usually pretty good. Okay, now how many of you would be honest and say, I would fall into the lost category? I'm, I'm, I'm a little more like, don't tell me north, south, east, and west. Tell me farm store, car wash, Walmart. Like, give me those. That's my, that's my rent. Yes. Okay, good. <clears throat> so, so there are... And the funny thing about being lost is you don't know when you get lost, right? You just, it's not like you're driving down the road and you're like, oh, I just lost. And you, you, you back up 100 feet and now you're unlost. You know, it's not, that's not how it works. You'd be driving along and, and you think everything is going good. And then all of a sudden you're like, I have no idea where I am, right? I remember when we moved to Baltimore and I was trying to learn the streets here and I'm like, why do these jokers think it's so funny to put all of the road signs behind telephone poles? I really began to think that the traffic cameras were more for the police entertainment. You know, like you've got a room full of police officers with donuts and coffee, and they're sitting in a room and they're like, this guy's got Virginia plates. Watch. This is going to be great. He totally missed it. He has no idea where he's going. Like, you, like that's kind of the way I felt. And... um. You know, these, these are kinds of the things. And, and here's the thing that, that we need to understand is your direction, not your intention, will always determine your destination. Your direction, not your intention, will always determine your destination. All right? And let me explain it geographically. 
You want to go to Florida. How many of you would like to go to Florida today? Be on a beach somewhere, chilling out, relaxing. Now you can say, I want to go to Florida, and you can get your sunscreen out. You can put it in a bag. You can get, you can get your board shorts and put them in a bag. You could even get the boogie board that you bought at Ocean City three summers ago. This cracked in half, and, and just stick that in the trunk too, and then you go out, you get on I-95 North. I don't care how much you want to end up in Florida. Your direction, not your intention, will determine your destination. And what you know to be true geographically, somehow you misunderstand in life. Because you think that, well, I just, I want to, I want to have a good, good relationship with my spouse. But I'm never going to give them any attention. Right? I want to have financial security. But 24 months, no interest, no payments looks really good right now. Right? So your direction, not your intention, will determine your destination in life and on the highway. It works all the time the same way. So I get in my car, my little 1984 Fiero, and I start driving. And I don't know exactly where I ended up, but it was, there was corn. There was a lot of corn. If you've ever been to Illinois, you know, corn is like, so I'm this tall. Corn is this tall. So when you're in Illinois driving, anytime in the summer, everything looks the same. Corn. That's all you see. You guys ever seen that movie, Secondhand Lions, and they plant the garden, and they think they've got all of these different vegetables that they planted, and as the plants start growing, they realize that the traveling salesman tricked them, and everything is corn. And so he's going down the line, and he's like, this says bok choy. That's not bok choy, that's corn. And then he goes down the next line, he says, that says tomatoes. That's not tomatoes, that's corn. And then he looks at it, and he goes, corn, 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 corn. Corn. It's all corn. That's how you feel driving through Illinois. It's just corn, corn, corn. Everywhere you go is corn. Now, when you're a 16-year-old boy in the middle of a cornfield, everything looks the same. And, and, and I remember standing there and pulling out my atlas and flipping through the atlas. I'm like, I think I'm in Illinois. What's this street? State Highway 13758462.33. I don't see that on here. And so I just started driving. And I'm like, maybe I'll find a gas station someplace, you know? Maybe I could ask somebody. Because you couldn't call anybody, but then you had the, you had the car phone. At the, you, you could pull up to a little phone booth, and it had a real long cord on the phone. And so you get over there and you put your money in. And I remember put my money in. I called my, my mom and dad and I pulled the phone in the car. Shoot. Hey, dad, guess what? I'm calling you from the car. Okay, son, where are you? See, that's the problem, dad. I, I don't know exactly where I am. Well, what's the cross streets? And I tell him, he's like, son, I have no idea where you are because I've never been there. And so I got to try to find out where I'm going. And finally, I ended up 
where I was trying to go. But what you learn is that it doesn't take long to get lost when you're going in the wrong direction. Right? When you're going the wrong way, you find yourself lost. And the problem that we have in life is that we're going a direction and we get lost and then we get angry at God because we're lost. And he's like, I told you what to do. And you said, no. Why are you upset with me? I want you to understand that your direction, not your intention, determines your destination. And so, so if you're experiencing some struggle in your life, you don't need to change some things. You need to change your direction. I don't know if you guys got that or not. So touch your neighbor and say, you need to change your direction. Change your direction. Somebody said, I know. I know. So here we are, Proverbs chapter 7. This is Solomon. And the way this is written is he's looking out the window of his house. And he sees this young man. And listen to what he writes here. Proverbs chapter 7. We're going to read verses 6 and 7 to start. He says, while I was at the window of my house looking through the curtain, I saw some naive young men and one in particular who lacked common sense. Don't you like the way that he says that? And let me just say this. Um, some, some versions, how many of you, your version says he lacked judgment, a young man that lacked judgment? Raise your hand if that's what your version says, okay? So some of you, your version says lack judgment. Some of you says naive. But regardless, the nature of young people is that you lack judgment, not because you're not smart, because the reality is that most teenagers I've discovered have tons of knowledge. But what teenagers lack and what young people lack is experiences, right? And just you have to live life to have experiences, and experience, by its very nature, gives you wisdom. And I remember when I was a teenager, I had had lots of experiences. As a matter of fact, I had more experiences than most of my friends, but I still didn't have the judgment that I needed from a life lived, right? And so Solomon's looking out his, his window, and he sees this kid, and he says, not only does he lack judgment, but the boy doesn't have a lick of common sense. I remember my dad used to always say, son, you know the problem with common sense it's just not that common. And I think that's so true. So one of our core principles for child rearing is we want to raise kids with uncommon sense. That's one of our core principles because it should look different than what is the common wisdom of the world that we live in. Because the common wisdom of the world that we live in is broken and foolish. Matter of fact, it's the wisdom of our world that says, hey, if your heart's right, just do whatever you want. Follow your heart, right? Which sounds so great. Just follow my heart. It's so romantical. <laughs> Love that. I'll follow my heart. Except when we read the scripture and the scripture says, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Ruh, ruh, raggy. So maybe the prevailing wisdom of follow your heart is what Solomon says, that's not very good sense. It's just not good wisdom. And watch what happens as this story unfolds. Verse 8, it says, He was crossing the street near the house of an immoral woman. Goodness gracious, she's already got a reputation. So strolling down the 
path. Strolling down the what? Okay, come on, one more time. Strolling down the? See, he's not making a decision. He's choosing to walk in a direction, right? He's walking down a path. And see, what he's thinking is, this is just an event. This is just a day. This is just an experience. And Solomon says, no, 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 it's a path. I want you to realize you're walking down a path. He says he's walking down a path by her house. So you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know where this story is going, right? I mean, in this kid's mind, he's singing the song, Party Like a Rock Star. And Solomon, from his vantage point, is the soundtrack that's in his mind is more like... You know, he knows it's going to go south. He knows things are going to get bad in a hurry. But this kid, he doesn't know. He thinks, I'm just going to have some fun. Solomon says, no, you're just taking some steps down a path that's going to end in your pain and your destruction. So listen, let's read. Verse 9, it was at twilight in the evening as deep darkness fell. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it crazy how so much stuff that you end up regretting happens after the sun goes down? Not weird. Jesus even says they love the darkness because their deeds were evil. If you come alive in the darkness, check your motivation. Check it, check it, check it. Because you may be on a path that you don't want to end up on. Okay? So listen, he's, he's walking down a path. It's twilight. In the evening, as deep darkness fell, the woman approached him seductively dressed and sly of heart. Ooh, where's this going? I don't even know. She was the brash, rebellious type, never content to stay at home. She is often in the streets and markets, soliciting at every corner. She threw her arms around him and kissed him. Uh-oh. Now, the tendency to, to think as you read this is that it's just about sex, and it's not. This is a principle that Solomon is laying out that applies in every area of your life. But what's interesting to me, and um, I was actually having a conversation with somebody this week about this, that our culture has tried to convince us that it's just sex, right? How many of you have ever heard that on a talk show or in a book or whatever? It's just sex, right? We hear that. But the people that I counsel on a consistent basis, the most deep wounds that they've ever experienced have to do with sex. Almost 100%. Almost 100%. So if it's just sex, why does it affect us so deeply? Is it okay if we talk about this at church? Like, because I feel like if we've got the truth of it from God's word, and we're resistant to talk about sex in church, and we're kind of doing a disservice to the entire body of Christ. Like, we got to know this stuff because it's important, right? especially because the world is so vocal and outspoken about it. I remember when it was the rarity that there was a, a premarital sexual relationship exposed on television 
when, when I was a kid and teenager, it was rare. Now it's rare not to have. Premier. Matter of fact, I was watching a car commercial this week, and it was a Ford commercial, I think, and they're talking about all the different Fords, and they said, they, they interviewed a couple that it was their first, like their first date, and they took them to show them the different Fords, and they said, hey, this first Ford, this is for when you move in together. Not when you get married, this is for when you move in together. This is a commercial that's saying the standard for sexual behavior and culture is just move in. Just move in. That is not the biblical standard. And I'm telling you, sexual deviation from scriptural principles will bite you in the butt 100% of the time. 100% of the time. It will wreck future intimacy in ways that you cannot begin to understand or comprehend until it's affecting you for real. I'm telling you, it blows up and you don't even realize it. Doesn't mean God can't redeem it because God's job natively is to supernaturally redeem. But I'm telling you, you expose yourself to all kinds of problems. And some of you can speak from experience that it hurts you in the long run. Intimacy prior to marriage, period. All right, so let's read on. So um, so Solomon is watching this whole thing come down. And, um, and, and let's read on to verse, uh, the second part of verse 13 into 14. Uh, says, and with a brazen look, she said, I've just made my peace offerings and fulfilled my vows. Now, this is something that you and I would ordinarily just read over because we don't understand the cultural implication of what's happening here. Okay, So when you make a peace offering, it's essentially you're, you're emptying your sin bucket before God. You're making peace with God from your sins. Okay, And so the way that it worked was that the animal belonged to the sacrificer, but the priest got the right shoulder and the breast of whatever animal was being sacrificed. And so it was kind of a way to supply for priests, but it was also a way to um, absolve sin between that and the, and the annual sacrifices. They used the peace offerings to keep peace between God. And, and the idea after you had your peace offering is you would have a feast because you had all of this animal left over. And so essentially what this girl is saying to to this young man is, hey, listen, I got a feast set up at the house. And, and I've already gone to the priest and I've emptied my sin bucket and now I'm ready to fill it back up with you. Come on. And what's interesting is we, we, we hear that intuitively and we say, what a stupid religious idea. But we all have that religious idea, right? And I have Catholic friends and they, they go to the priest and they go to confession, right? And they say, hey, say however many Hail Marys and do this and do that. And then you'll be absolved of your sin. And now I can go back out and I can sin, right? The, the, the Protestants, we've kind of just done away with the middleman. And, and we've misused the passage of scripture that says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So what we do is we, we sin and we sin and we sin and we say, oh, Jesus, please forgive me of all my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. And then we go back out and we sin and we sin and we sin. And God says, that's an insult to my holiness. Don't behave that way. 
right? We talked last week about obedience is our proper response to God's grace, right? God's grace demonstrates that he's given us all of his heart. Obedience demonstrates that we've given God all of our heart, right? That's the way that it works. Obedience is not conditional. Obedience does not cause us to be in favor with God. Obedience does not cause us to be forgiven of our sins. Obedience just demonstrates to God, hey, look, I'm serious about my love for you, right? And so, so, but what this girl's doing is she's saying, hey, look, I have a feast. I'm empty of my sins. So let's go and get our sin on, right? Let's do it. And listen to what happens. She says, you're the one I was looking for. I came out to find you, and here you are. In other words, you're special, and he's buying it. He's like, yeah, I'm special. I'm the guy. She was looking for me. I can't wait. That We've got something very romantic and special. I love it, right? So that's this guy's opinion of himself. Now listen, verse 16. My my bed is spread with beautiful blankets, with colored sheets of Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink our fill of love until morning. Let's enjoy each other's caresses, for my husband is not home, to which you're like, I'm assuming that, right? Like that goes without saying, And listen what she says. She says, he's taken his wallet full of money with him and won't return until later this month. In other words, you don't have to rush off. We can sleep in in the morning. We can watch the news. We can have breakfast. Don't worry about it. Do you hear this thing developing? And this young man is thinking, yes, I'm the man. This is going to be amazing. And Solomon's looking at him going, and you don't understand. This is, see, because young man, what you see is an event. What you see is a night. What you see is momentary pleasure. What I see is that you're walking down a path that's going to lead to your harm. I wish you could see it. I wish you could see it. I remember, um, let's read on just a little bit. It says, um, So she seduced him with her pretty speech and enticed him with her flattery. So now Solomon kind of pulls back in the narrative and he starts talking to us, right? He's been kind of addressing it as he sees this young man, but now he starts to address it as it relates to us. And he says, he followed her at once. He's saying, this is going to be so much fun. What a night. This is going to be amazing. He says, he followed her at once like an ox going to the slaughter. Again, think about this in light of what an actual slaughter of an animal looks like. The ox has no idea what it's getting into when it's headed to the altar, does it? But when, it's get, when it gets there, it's abundantly clear and it's too late. And then he says, hey, in case you didn't get the mental image from the thousand oxen I slaughtered a few months ago, let me give you this one. He was like a, sna- uh, like a stag caught in a trap, awaiting the arrow that would pierce its heart. This is graphic. He's going into detail here. He was like a bird flying into a snare, little knowing it would cost him his life. So listen to me, my sons. Listen to me, church. 
Don't let your heart stray towards her. Don't wander down her wayward path. Again, he's bringing us back to this is a path. These decisions lead you down a path. How do you walk somewhere? One step at a time, right? And it's one little decision. One little decision. I'm walking. I'm walking. I'm walking. But it's leading you down a path. The question is, what path do you want to go down? I love the the statement by Yogi Berra. He says, if you see a fork in the road, take it. Some of us, that's kind of our approach to life. You just start walking, and if you see a fork in the road, just take it. I don't care. I don't have any direction. I'm just kind of, whoop. And let me, let me break this down to something outside of, you know, because any of you that are kind of disconnecting because you think this is just about sex, think about it like this. If you have children, um, the way this works with our kids sometimes is you start your kid in a sport, right? So, for example, Daniel's playing baseball. And he's the fastest kid on his team. That's pretty cool, right? He just steal bases like a mamby-jamby. This kid is fast. He'll be standing on second before the catcher catches the ball. And as a dad, I just get a little bit swole up when I see him do it. I'm like, man, he just, all he needs is two pitches. He's on third base. This kid has got skills, right? The coach says, man, you should see about getting him to play on a club team. And then I'm like, yeah, he could be on a club team, Right? We should do the club team. Yeah, because he's that good. I never wanted him to play on the club team. But now I'm down at the rec council or the the club council. I don't even know what it is because he's not playing on the club team. But you find yourself down there and you're signing him up. And then after you sign up, you get the email and it says, okay, practice is on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and half day on Sunday. And then you play 26 games a week, and you, you have to travel to Maine, Columbus, Ohio, and, and you're like, oh, okay, but he's that good. He's that good. I don't want to hold him back. And you've taken a step down a path that you're like boxed into now, right? I just paid $8,000 to sign him up for club and get him like seven uniforms. And, and, and now I got I to gotta get a new car because I can't make it to Columbus, Ohio in my 1987 Corolla. I got to do something. Now I'm over at the car dealer like, how much is it a week again? It's just $52 a week? Okay, we could do $52 a week. What's the interest? 27%? Okay, that sounds reasonable. And all of a sudden, you're just like, we were just playing rec baseball, and now all of a sudden, we're in bankruptcy because my kid's going to Columbus, so I don't even know how this happened. Do you see how this stuff works? And it's funny. It sounds absurd when we describe it this way. But this stuff happens all the time for people. Like, you don't want to be at baseball practice five nights a week, but you find yourself sitting there like 800 degrees summertime, boiling heat, trying to keep yourself hydrated, watching 11-year-olds miss pitches to first base. And you're like, I don't see the major leagues in any of your future. I love you all, but it's not there, right? 
But we buy into this and we just end up somewhere and we don't care where because we haven't been intentional about the path that we walk down. And Solomon says, you're looking at it as an event, but it's not an event, it's a path. And you've got to be wise about what path you walk down. Okay, so here we go. uh, I'll read verse 26. It says, for she has been the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. Her house is the road. What is it? It's the road. What is it? Road to the grave. Her bedroom is the den of death. And I remember when we lived in Richmond, Mary having a conversation with a girl that started dating a guy that she had met in a bar. And um, let me just express to all of you who are single, if you want to marry a godly man or if you want to marry a godly woman, the best place to look is not going to be a bar. Okay? Just straight. Here comes... You ready for this? I'm just going to be Pastor Dad for just a second instead of Pastor Brad. If you want a godly man, you're not going to find him at the club. He's not there. The guy at the club is looking for sex as soon as possible. Okay? And... and, Okay, let's just get a thousand times more real for just a second. The reason why girls dress the way they do at the club is because they're fishing. But the bait that you fish with will determine what you catch. So so if it's not on the menu, stop advertising, okay? Okay. This is so important. Ladies, I want you to be married to an amazing man. Start looking in the right place. Men, I want you to be married to an amazing woman. Start looking in the right place. This is so critical, so critical. So here's the disconnect, right? And um, I want our family to be a unit I want it to be together. I want to have a great relationship with my wife and my kids, so I'm going to work all the time to make sure that happens. I'm going to put in 60 hours a week. It doesn't work that way, does it? Do you see the disconnect? If you want to have relationship, people have this this misunderstanding that there's a difference between quality time and quantity time. Quality time is quantity time. If you want relationship with your kids, it can't be done by parachuting in occasionally. And I understand that some of you are in situations where there's divorce and there's complications, and and I know that that's the case. In those moments, make the most of the time that you have. Give your kids your undivided attention when you have them. Because what I've learned, what I've experienced is that my presence represents quality because my kids don't have problems on a schedule. Your kid's not going to experience a crisis on a schedule. You're like, okay, Saturday noon, I'm going to pick you up, and that's going to be a great time for you to have a crisis. So if you're going to have a crisis, do it like noon to one. We'll work it out, and everything will be good. Right? That's not the way it works. you got to be present. you got to be present. I, I love 
to be available to my family as much as possible. Why? Because I want them to know I can go to dad and he's going to help me when I need it. I'm not always there. I wish I could be. I have this thing I like to call a job and, and it requires me to be away sometimes, right? But as often as I can be, I want to be present. You say, I want my kids to respect me. So I'm going to be disrespectful to their mother and I'm going to cheat on her. And um, I'm sure that that's going to make my kids respect me more. No. But what happens? It's a path. It's a step. You walk down it, right? And the result of those steps that you take will determine the value that your kids place on how much they honor you, right? I want to, be, I want to grow old and be around for my grandkids, so I'm going to neglect my health. I had... I had a wake-up call to this a couple years ago where I said, I am so unhealthy. I cannot play with my kids without being winded. I can't bend over and tie my shoes and not sit up without my pulse pounding and being out of breath. That's unhealthy. My back hurts all the time. I want to be around for my kids and my grandkids. I don't want to just be here for my kids. I want to be able to spoil my grandkids and mess up my kids' opportunity to parent correctly. I want to do that. I've had amazing grandparents in my life that have screwed up my parenting skills. And um, and it's, it's great. That's what grandparents are for. And I want to mess things up for my kids. I want to keep my freezer stocked with Klondike bars. And I want to, I want to feed them Klondike bars before dinner. That's what we love. That's what grandparents are for, right? And so, so you can't be around for your grandkids and neglect your health. You can't say, man, I want to lose weight. Yeah, I tell you what, this time let's go ahead and supersize it. Right? It doesn't work that way. And that was the trajectory from my life. And one of the things that I learned from experience that if you eat a lot of fat, greasy food, you become a fat, greasy dude. That's what I did, Right? I did it, and I was good at it. Like, I was better than most. And I'd be like, those french fries look good, but the gravy looked really good. Let's do the french fries and gravy, because this isn't fattening enough. Baltimore wrecked me with gravy. Holy mackerel. And I still eat some fries and gravy, but only on occasion, not every time I go to the diner. Right? So, so there are paths that we take that lead us to the place that we either want to go or we don't want to go. What I want for you is to stand back and ask the question, am I really headed in the direction that I want for my life? Like when you evaluate your life, if you look at your circumstances, is this what you dreamed of? Is this what you hoped for? And I'm here to tell you that it's not too late. It's never too late. There's this song that says, For I know my Redeemer lives. Yes, I know my Redeemer lives. And all creation testifies. Right? My Redeemer 
lives. Let me tell you something. The, the thread that runs through all of Scripture is the thread of redemption. From cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, the story is one, and the story is redemption. So if you look at your life right now and you're like, man, I hate the way things have turned out. It doesn't have to stay that way. But you have to make a decision to change direction. You can't continue to make the same choices over and over and over and expect different results. Like, man, I don't understand why I'm struggling with my weight so bad, but these french fries are so good, right? I'm preaching to myself, guys, because over the last six weeks, I've put on some of the weight that I lost, and I came back five pounds. And and now I got to say, oh, I know my Redeemer lives. Oh, I know I got to put those french fries back. Let all creation testify that this banana is going to help me get where I want to be. But it don't taste like a french fry. Right? So I just grabbed the fry. I just made that up, by the way. That's like freestyle my redeemer lives. And, and so I just, I just grabbed the banana now. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus, for the banana. Please forgive me of my sins, Lord. You are faithful and just. God, I just want some peanut butter with it or something, God, please. And apple now. Here comes the apple, Lord. Give me a salad for lunch, God. I'm paying penance right now in Jesus' name. So it's one of those things. But you've got to make decisions. You've got to make. And it's one small decision. And here's what we do so often, right? And, and I'm using weight loss as an example because it's so personal to me. Um, for those of you that don't know, I lost 50 pounds and that's a big deal to lose 50 pounds, right? So that wasn't meant for applause, but thank you. But the, so the, the 50 pounds, though, represents decisions, represents decisions. And my tendency was, well, after this birthday party, then I'm going to get on track. Well, the problem was after the birthday party, there was a wedding. Well, after the wedding, you know, they got the whole buffet. Have you seen the buffet? <laughs> but if you go to the buffet, you got decisions to make. And guess what? There's salad on the buffet. Somebody just said amen. Come on. Come on, preachers. Let's go. So, so, so it's, it's all about decisions. And so what I had to decide was, look, when I go to the wedding, I'm going to have the salad and the fish. And a chicken breast, because it's zero points. And I love me some zero points on the Weight Watchers. And I'm going to eat three chicken breasts, because I'm that hungry right now. But you tend not to overeat chicken breast, right? What I tend to overeat is, is that eclair dessert thing that Daria made that was cooked in the pit of hell for my destruction. That is... That's what I tend to overeat. And, and my pancreas is like, oh, man, what are you doing to me right now? And, and, and so this is the way this thing works. Now, there are some people that love me, like Mario, and he brought grilled salmon, right? And he brought blackened chicken breast and, and asparagus. And I was like, I could eat this all day long, 
and, and be healthy. So it's, it's just decisions, 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 decisions. And you can't continue down a path saying, I'm going to change tomorrow. I'm going to change tomorrow. I'm going to fix it tomorrow. I'm going to stop smoking tomorrow. I'm going to stop drinking tomorrow. I'm going to stop sleeping around tomorrow. I'm going to stop going to the bar tomorrow. I'm going to stop, 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 stop. No. Today, I'm going to make a decision. I blew it at lunchtime, but right now, I'm back on track. Not tomorrow I'm on track. Right now, I'm back on track. I'm going to save myself that 1,000 calories that I would have sabotaged myself the rest of the day right now. And I'm telling you, it's those little decisions that will help you win in the end. Little decisions. Stand with me this morning. I don't want you just to think that this is a a sex and weight loss sermon, because it's not. (laughs) But if I could tell you this, so much of the sin issues that we wrestle with are so well illustrated in those two areas of control. Those two areas of decision-making are so powerful. One of the reasons why Samson had so many problems, right? He was... He was so strong, but he was so weak. I had somebody tell me one time, you know, the weaker sex is actually the stronger sex because of the stronger sex's weakness for the weaker sex. And I thought, I think I got what you just said. And that makes sense, right? Um, there, there's just this, this thing that we wrestle with, Right? And, and we have to be intentional about decisions that we make, but it plays out in every area of our life. And it's just one right decision, one correct turn. I have a GPS now in my car. Remember when the GPSs first started to become common in the car and you put it in and I used to turn the volume down on my GPS because I didn't want that thing talking to me, right? And so I turned the volume down and then I'll be like, well, I'm not going to take that turn. I'm going to go this way because I think it's wrong, right? How many of you have ever done that with the GPS? Okay. And you, you go on and then I find myself getting confused and then it's got me U-turning. I'm like, well, I've got to U-turn. I don't want to U-turn. I want to go down here. And if I just go down here and over here, then I'll be connected where I want to be. And then I want to end up there and then there'll be a, a road blockage and I'll say oh shoot man I gotta go back here and then I'll have to turn the volume back up and when I turn the volume back up because I couldn't look because I was confused as to where I was I've never been lost I've just been confused and so I was looking at this thing and trying to be uh, you know reoriented to where I was and never once did my GPS when I got off track say you moron I told you five miles ago to make the left right what does it say it just says Recalculating root. Recalculating root. In a calm voice, recalculating root. And that's what God would say to you if you're off track, if you've made wrong decisions, if you've gotten your life off. Hey, don't worry about it. I'll still get you home. We just got to recalculate the root. Aren't you glad that God can recalculate your root? Come on, let's lift our hands up. Yeah, come on, give him a clap of praise. God, we are so grateful. Lord, we lift our hands to you this morning because no matter where we are, no matter how lost we feel, no matter how painful our circumstance, you have the strength to recalculate our route. You see all the angles. You see all of the obstacles. You know what's best for us. And I feel your spirit saying to this church, don't worry, hang on, I'm recalculating your route. Don't worry about it. Just follow me. Just follow me. God, I pray for the strength 
to make one right decision after another and just follow along with what your plan and purpose is. God, we, we give you control. Even more than us depending on you to be our GPS, we depend on you to be our steering wheel. Navigate us, Lord, as we go through this life. Help us to lean into who you are. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, the whole church said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. 